Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast and blustery day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Elizabeth Marsh, owner of Elizabeth Marsh Floral Design, a London-based floral designer. Elizabeth, hello. Hello there. Well, thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally we go straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the odd circumstances we find ourselves under, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how COVID-19 has affected your business. Well, obviously it's affected it hugely. Um, a lot of it's at a standstill. Um, 80% of my workforce are furloughed. Uh, I have three self-employed staff who are, are carrying on um, because they couldn't be furloughed, and and I'm sort of filling in all the gaps. Now, do you feel that this is going to have a long-term effect on the industry as a whole? I think the answer to that is both yes and no. Mm-hmm. Yes, obviously, it is going to have an impact, and I think that's both positive and negative. I think some businesses will inevitably disappear, both florists, garden centres, nurseries, wholesalers, growers. I don't think everyone's going to survive, which is very sad. Mm -hmm. On the positive side, I think it gives us um, an opportunity. I think the whole country has had an opportunity to, uh, as a floral design company, um, to really understand how powerful and how important nature are and hopefully we can start to look after our our environment a bit better and a bit more um, with a bit more awareness. Now uh, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by just asking what does the word leader mean to you? Um, I take the the word leader very seriously. Um, I was always brought up to understand that with power comes responsibility. And I always, uh, my internal dialogue always follows the road of the, um, the, the aristocratic husbandry of the land and the people that worked it. So I suppose for me, a good leader is someone who doesn't see themselves as above their environment or their community but as as very much amidst it so as a leader it's really important to me to walk the talk not just to tell people what to do but actually to show them what to do Mm -hmm. to set an example Um, integrity is of the utmost importance in a leader because if our leaders don't have integrity then how are we ever going to expect our followers to now, of course, uh, leadership comes with its own trials and tribulations, uh, none of which is more difficult than dealing with people. Uh, of course, uh, people aren't imperfect. Uh, they have their bad days, and sometimes they are uh, in conflict with one another. What's your philosophy on uh, the uh, dissolution of conflict within the workplace? Interestingly, as a leader, I would say that uh, my job has been certainly over the last 10 years, I've been actively building up my business to work on myself Mm -hmm. almost purely and utterly. 
I think everything else then just flows on from that. And the personal development that I've done over the last, um, well, 13 years now has really helped me um, to develop emotional intelligence and emotional literacy. So emotional intelligence is one thing, but emotional literacy is something else altogether. And it's a key ingredient in um, being able to work with other people and to work through conflict. It, it, it comes hand in hand with uh, ownership of my own baggage, my own uh, projections, my own shadow stuff, and an acceptance that other people have all of those things as well. And if I can take that into account when I'm talking to someone, I'm more likely to actually hear them than just react or um, kick back at them. Now, of course, leadership doesn't develop in a vacuum. It comes from somewhere. Um, let's go back to the beginning of your career when you first started off your working life. Did you have any particular influences or role models who shaped you as you are today? Well, it's funny that you should say that because as a woman, um, I've struggled to find female role models. Most of my role models in the early days were men. Um just because there weren't that many um, high-profile female leaders. Um, I suppose Margaret Thatcher is the standout one from in my sort of developing uh, era. Mm-hmm. And she was a very mixed bag, but she was very strong. And she did um, really believe in what she was doing, I think. Whether you like her or hate her, and a lot of people hate her, she did actually follow her ideals and, and her ideas about what was right all the way through, despite the odds. Consistency. Um, I've had a couple of other leaders since then, um, but but most of them, I would say, were men. And my father has been a, a key figure in my um, as, as a role model for me in, in developing my own sense of leadership. Now, of course, uh, it's it's very important to provide that uh, model uh, to the next generation. Do you provide any sort of mentorship schemes uh, for young people within your organization? Um, I have done. Currently, I don't in a in a business sense. Although we just had an intern for six weeks, and I had an intern a couple of years ago, and. To a certain extent, I coach my team. So all the people in my team, at some point or another, they get uh, the the benefit of the things that I've learned, either directly or indirectly. Um, I I do help uh, people outside the work scenario, so people with emotional problems. um, I help them with mentorship, um, an element of coaching. Um, And my children, I mean, they're probably my biggest legacy, really. Uh, you know, if we work hard to to make sure that we give uh, our children the best insight we can without sort of taking over and trying to do it for them or force them to do things any way other than their own, then hopefully we leave the world in a better place than we found it. And what a wonderful world uh, that would be. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, I know it's a very uncertain world and no one has a crystal ball, but uh, what does next 12 months have in store uh, for Elizabeth Marsh Floral Design? Well, I think 
for us, it's a continuation of a journey that we've already started. Uh, we already talk about uh, the importance of nature in um, an urbanized uh, society. Uh, I always think of the grayed out metropolis and I see flowers and plants as those elements which really bring an, an element of creativity and of human uh, emotion and really a sense of um, sort of leaving people feeling like they matter. So our mantra is uh, that I want to be known as um, someone who creates magical spaces and leaves people feeling like they matter. And, and that's kind of what we try to do. I think now it's increasingly important. I think the use of flowers and plants um, you know, will also have a sort of um, an element of purifying the atmosphere and maybe providing some slightly more pr pleasant physical boundaries between work groups as we sort of drift back into the offices rather than sort of perfect screens or something very clinical and, uh, and very sort of alienating. I think, you know, it's important as we go back to work to, to retain that sense of um, uh, some of the comforts that we've had from working at home, bringing that to the workplace with mm. us, making the workplace a more human and humanized environment well elizabeth i thank you very much for coming on the show and i do hope at some point uh when things get back to some semblance of normalcy you could rejoin uh the show at that point elizabeth thank you thank you so much that was elizabeth marsh owner of elizabeth marsh floral design and now if you haven't heard it before is jonathan white's exclusive interview with sir andrew strauss Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on 
helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we we 
we won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. 
Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time (laughs) so you know we had to completely shift our both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew 
what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it 
Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um 
I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.